when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. Those of you that don't know that actually, as we understand the scriptures, could happen before the service is over this morning. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? And uh, it's going to be a trumpet, God's trumpet, that's going to sound. I'm assuming that's the trumpet of the archangel, as the text says. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says the Lord's going to come in the exact way that he ascended after his death, burial, and resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, he's going to come in the clouds. His feet aren't going to touch the earth just yet. And he's going to take those who have turned from their sin and placed their faith in him alone, not a church, not their religious works, not their pastor, not their priest, in Jesus' finished work on the cross alone, because only he could die for sins. We can't die for each other's sins. He was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. As we have given our lives to him, he returns for his family that he himself has saved. And according to the scriptures, there will be a time where we return with the Lord Jesus Christ to earth uh, to reign for a thousand years. And uh, in that time, there will be uh, no more disease that will reign, no more viruses that will reign, no more uh, national debt that will reign, no more killing, no more violence. No more weeping, no more mourning. For a thousand years when King Jesus reigns on the throne, the light of God himself, all of the world will know his peace and will know his justice and his equity as we enjoy the shining of his light from Jerusalem to the whole world or as the Old Testament says, there will not even be even a need for the sun to shine by day because the light of Christ himself will shine through the whole world. And, uh, and you and I apparently are going to be given places throughout the world from which we reign. So you then become the new congressmen and the senators and the presidents and the kings and the queens of the world. That's what the Bible says. And then we rule under his pure justice and peace and light for a thousand years. So, hey, maybe with a shout, that all commences today. But in the meantime, we have to preach. Amen. And I hear from God's word this morning. So let's pray. Uh, just real quickly, uh, uh, Jeff, can I have you come up front here real quick? Jeff Ashdown, wherever you are, just come on up. We're going to pray with Jeff. Jeff was diagnosed with some uh, serious cancer this week. And um, more will be told tomorrow. But I thought we could spend a moment in time in prayer for our brother. I suppose since one plus one in biblical marital math equals one, we should have your wife come up too. I would think so. So Mary Jo, I'm sorry, I should have had you come too. You bear these burdens with him. And, uh, if we had the whole family tree come, it might take a while. So we'll just have... <laughs> Josh, your baby's doing okay this morning? Excellent. Good. Good. Praying for her, too. And your wife's baby. I didn't see her. No, Katie's with her. All right. Katie's with her. It makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So tomorrow we find out a lot more. Mm -hmm. And um, but talked to Jeff last night and uh, spiritually claiming the promises in the Lord. He's optimistic. And um, so we're just going to commit this to the Lord, okay? Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for this divine opportunity we have to dedicate uh, this particular physical matter of Jeff's uh, to you for your glory. That's a sacred honor for us to be able to do that as a family and and for this man and this sweet couple. We know, Lord, your word says for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Today we live and tomorrow we'll seek to live for Christ. And I pray, Lord, that the results of the, the PET scan tomorrow would reveal that the cancer is not as advanced as first thought. I pray, Lord, that you would stay the growth of this cancer. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, spare uh, your child's life for the gospel's sake, as you know he and his wife are both bright lights for the truth of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us wisdom as a church family and how to walk with them through uh, this valley of the shadow of death that is not death itself. But help us always to realize there is the light of God that casts itself upon this valley, creating the shadow. It is, the, it is you, Lord, who oversees all this. And we walk together through it by your grace. Heal him, Lord, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Waiting for a good message. You ready? He says, thank you. I'm waiting for a good message. Are, are you ready? <laughs> you couldn't hear it, my microphone. It's what he asked me on the phone last night. I'm trying to get all this data so I could pray for him. And he just wants to talk about the message today. All right. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Let's wrap up this chapter. As I told you last week, the Apostle Paul is really going into protection mode. So I think it's neat. As we highlighted last week, going back to verse 1, that really that urge... The word that, that word used in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 10, urge, is really calling the whole flock together, uh, I believe, in particular attention to those first six verses, but also the rest of this section of this book, this final and third section of this letter of 2 Corinthians 10. So, so what I think is neat, the protection of the church, the oversight of the protection of the church is just not mine to own. It's yours to own. And you're doing a great job, by the way. I would just encourage you to, to do this more and more. The word urge is parakaleo, the Greek language. It's calling alongside everybody to participate in the reality of what this ecclesiastical protection really is. And we found out a number of things that it was last week. We know broadly that it was about Paul being involved with building the church, not destroying the church. And he lists, after broadly stating that in what we studied last week, particular ways in which he sought to build up the church. We looked at the nature of that word build by looking at its definition in specific last week, and it's to basically maintenance the divine potential of growth that God's already built within his building which is the church and the people of the church. 
because unbelief from the outside and a little bit within was always trying to do the opposite. They were trying to uh, train the church that it did not have an ability in Christ alone to be built. And so they were always destroying. They were always deconstructing that which God had built. And so Paul calls all of us to be maintenance workers within his household of faith of protecting that which God has built. We defined what destroyers are like last week. Saw that in verses 10, 9, 10, and 11. Um, and we talked about what those who are protectors, those who are builders do last week. And we'll continue now with defining for you what your role is in specific as the people of God who are the protectors of each other and the flock of God. What virtues do do we need to own together as under shepherds of, of God's flock? So I'm going to read verses 12 to 18 here. And then uh, in the next 35 minutes, uh, we'll explore a couple more virtues of protectors of the church. Right? Protectors of the content of God's word, his gospel, and the spread of that gospel. Verse 12. 2 Corinthians 10 in verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Remember we said throughout this whole book, and you'll hear it several more times till we finish, that unbelief loves to self-promote. Unbelief loves to self-promote, whether it's themselves, whether it's their ideology, whether it's their philosophy or their false religious conviction, they love to self-promote. And then they love to compare themselves in light of themselves. And Paul says, that's not what I, I'm going to participate in. We are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those, that's the unbelievers, who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, there's a qualifying statement here. They're without understanding, and we'll look at that in a little bit. But we, here's this adversative, right? Here's this change of direction. This is what we will do. Now, I say we because Paul's never about me. He's always about we. Are you with me? And remember the urge in verse 1, I call all of you alongside. So this is what we all get to do together as under shepherds of the church. But we, will not boast beyond our measure. Now, if you believe in writing in your Bibles, I think it would be good to start underlining that word measure. Because you're going to see it a few more times. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were, we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, and we'll come to find out that those were gospel labors. There's other folks out there proclaiming and living the gospel. We will be within our sphere 
enlarged even more by you with a purpose so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. And then we saw that concluding verse last week when we were talking about the genuine and the disgenuine, the approved and the unapproved. But he, verse 18, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, dokimas, but he whom the Lord commends. So uh, let's go back now up to verse 12 and let's learn of this next virtue together um, of under shepherds of protection of the church. I love to read C.S. Lewis. Uh, he once said that since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least hear of brave knights and heroic courage. There's all kinds of spiritual enemies of darkness all around us, out in the world. So let's talk about the, the spiritual brave knights and heroes of courage inside the local church. I think for whatever measure of spiritual bravery we have, or whatever measure of spiritual success you have as the saints of God, the heroes of God, if you will, I think that is to be considered, and that is to be praised, that is to be recognized. So we're it. We are the brave ones. We are the saints of courage that adorn these virtues of protection of the flock. And, and we do this together so that the gospel can be advanced. You are the people of God who are maintenancing the unity, Ephesians 4, produced by the Spirit. You are the ones who are building and not destroying you are the ones who long to look at each other and see the spiritual potential that the Spirit of God offers as He indwells you. As you understand the Word of God and the work of God in Christ together more comprehensively. You all in Christ are the under-shepherds of the flock. It is not laid squarely on pastor-teachers. You are the brave knights and the souls of heroic courage. And we join Paul in this method and manner as he demonstrates, as he writes about his own life as an example for us to follow his example. So in verse 12, there's something that we don't do, and it's something that we don't do that's negatively expressed here we've already read. We're not going to class ourselves with those who compare themselves in light of themselves. What does that mean? What does that mean? I really do believe Paul draws our attention back to identity issues here. Issues of the day when he lived, as there are identity issues of the day in which we live. He's highlighted those identity issues for us of unbelief throughout this book. Remember, there was resume comparison. Who's smarter than the next person? Who's ready to thrive 
best in the socioeconomic environment of the day, right? Whose philosophy is more on point than the other? You guys understand the, the philosopher lifestyles and ideologies of the day uh, that had commenced out of the Greek world into the Roman world and into the Jewish world at that point. Even to the point where they were comparing styles of public speaking, styles of rhetoric and being critical of who was polished and who wasn't. There were unnecessary racial comparisons going on in this particular culture at that time, both secular and in an uh, irreligious way inside the church. And of course, there were just mere religious comparisons as well. And Paul just says, you know what? I'm not going to be caught up in identifying with any one of those things that may matter but has no matter when it comes to eternal matters. Some of them are just downright wrong and a believer shouldn't participate, but there might be a philosophy out there that's infused with some common grace that might make sense and I might enjoy that, but I'm not going to give my life to that. I'm going to give my life and my cause. So we, I urge you, we give our lives to the same cause. So our identity is exclusively with Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is, as we've said over and over again, and for fear that some might think that this is just a program of Grace Church of Mentor. This is the why of God in the New Testament. There's always been uh, outside and sometimes within the church distracting forces to pull us away from the eternal reason why we exist. And that affects how we practically live. There's always things pulling us away, pulling us away from our eternal why of our existence. I hate to go through this again, so I'm not going to belabor it. I've preached on it plenty of times. But Ephesians chapter 1 outlines for you the purpose of your existence. Go back and read it on your own. And the Bible says the eternal plan was written down by the hand of God before he even said, let there be light. Your plan was written down by God before he said, let there be light. And the why of your life becomes the why of your Savior's life. When you come to know him as your Lord and Savior, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. A sacrifice so that other people might know Jesus Christ and that we can shepherd them in the word unto Christ's likeness. That's the spiritual clothesline of every one of our existence. Whether you're involved in any kind of industry, right? It doesn't matter. Whatever you do that you get a paycheck for, the why of your life is the why of the existence of Jesus' life. So all of these identity things that people get caught up talking about and then comparing and contrasting, Paul says, I will not. And he says here, not me, but we. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. There's a lot that 
is secular that has infected the world and the church by way of philosophy. I was reading a quote this week of a favorite author of mine. He says, one of the insidious consequences of secularism is its constant fluidity, its fashionable fictions and destabilizing fallacies. Jesus Christ is the opposite of that. In Christ, there is a place to stand. There is fixity and finality. Stability is going to be a pathway to evangelism. So anything that is a philosophy, anything that is um, merely human or secular, whether it has value to it or no value at all, value by common grace or no value at all, if it's distracting away from the stability and the direction that we have in Christ, each one of you has to draw the circle around yourself and bring you back to analyze by yourself because you're going to be by yourself when you see Jesus someday at the Bema seat. You're not going to be standing there with someone who's sitting next to you. And he's going to ask you, were you faithful? And the well done, thou good and faithful servant, is only spoken to you if you've been faithful to the very reason of the why of the existence of Jesus Christ. And he's going to know all the distractions that have come about medically, politically, and otherwise in the last 19 months of a 100-year pandemic. He's going to know. Right? He's overseen the world and subcultures go through much worse. And he's going to know how you were distracted during that time, away from the why of your existence. And he's going to look and he's going to say, I came for you for a reason. Did you live my reason for dying for you? That's what he's going to do, as far as I understand the scriptures. And if not, what distracted you away from that? Why? Even though it had some virtue to it, you got distracted unto it. You just didn't attend to it. You let it distract you away from your why. And Paul says here, we just can't get caught up in that identity crisis. We just can't do it. We are, maybe some, pull yourselves back and let's get back to what we're supposed to be doing. Which he's going to talk about here next in verses 13 to 17. The people, the people that are involved in this comparing, the people that are involved in all of this distraction both again, probably educational, philosophical, vocational, religious, whatever it is, that it's of no eternal value in secularism. Whether virtue some or no virtue at all, whoever that is, remember he's already told us from the previous description of these people that they tend to be highly impersonal people. They tend to be highly divisive people. They're not uniners, they're dividers. They're self-promoters. They always love to be heard and never love to hear. Right? They're always learning and never coming to the knowledge of truth. So it's always noisy, it's always interesting, it always sounds wonderful. 
But Paul says they're highly impersonal and gospel work is personal. That's why he goes, we need to do this. <laughs> we, we, not me, we. Paul says, I have nothing to tell you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Right? That's the John the Baptist mentality. Jesus Christ must increase, I must decrease. This is zero self-promotion, zero promotion of anything sexual or uh, secular, virtual or not virtual. This is Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And this is something we do together. I was reading another favorite author of mine recently, and he said, always remember, you can't wash feet from a distance. Spiritual work is personal work. It's not individual self-promoting work. It's not anything secular. If we're going to do this as the we, we've got to be transparently in a spirit-filled way doing the why of Christ together. So as we said, as we were reading through these verses, in verses 13 to 18, we saw one word more than the other, but we saw the word measure. And we saw the word boasting or boast quite a few times. I want to talk a little bit about those two words within the context of verses 13 to 17, because I think verse 18 is really a pretty, pretty much a conclusion telling us who's real and who's not. We want to be part of the dokimos, not the adokimos, right? And so he goes back and he tells us what true, genuine protectors are. And apparently someone who loves to protect the flock doesn't get involved with this comparison and identity crisis. And someone who loves to protect the flock is really understanding what it means to spiritually boast and boast within the measure of God-appointed boasting. We're going to find out here that boasting and that measuring is all in the context of the gospel and gospel advancement as we've already read. And we'll outline this for you as we go. Now boasting is rarely ever a virtue in our culture. I would say it's never virtuous in our minds to hear someone brag or boast, right? Because that's usually about self-promotion. But I want you to step back with me a few thousand years and understand how the Corinthian ear would have heard this word. Solomon says that if someone brags or self-promotes, that he's a simpleton at best, naive and probably not wise, but a fool. In the first century, the Greek term, the word boast means expressing a high amount of confidence in something that is valuable or excellent. Now that's opposite of the way we would think about it, right? When we brag or boast, or our culture does, it's particularly in something that they think is valuable or noteworthy, but maybe no one else does. <laughs> and maybe it's not even valuable or noteworthy. But this word in this time means that when you bragged, you bragged or you boasted about something that was singularly noteworthy or valuable. And so Paul says that it's good to boast about something within this context. Now, to be fair, uh, this word is used in James chapter 4. Uh, we won't go there now, but you can cross-reference and read it on your own time. There was, a, there was something that the Jewish believers in the church that James wrote to were boasting about that they thought was valuable and noteworthy. And James has to write and tell them, no, not so much. Right? 
Remember they were talking about, uh, James says, come now all of you who go and buy and sell and get gain. And you do so without asking if the Lord approves. And then he goes, such boasting is evil. In other words, you think stepping out and living what I would call, what we would call probably practical atheistic life of I'm going to shop here, I'm going to get this job, I'm going to make this money, I'm going to pick this house, I'm going to buy this car, I'm going to take this vacation, I'm going to live my life, all these good things that God's given me without considering if the Lord willed me to do this. In other words, you're going to live your life without God and enjoy all the good things God gave to you. That's practical atheism. James calls that evil. So rather, he says, when you make your calendar out for your week or your month or your year, we should say, if the Lord wills. And that's where that, Lord willing, I plan to do this. And many of you say that, right? As a matter of fact, if you say, you know what, I'm going to go do this. Sometimes we catch ourselves, we go, Lord willing, right? Right? Because we don't want to be practical atheists. And then some of us catch, and they say, well, I will never do this. And then we catch ourselves as like, Lord willing, <laughs> right? Because what I found out every time, every single time I said, I will never do this, and I never said God willing, God ended up making me do it <laughs> to remind me. So anyways, that's the idea. Paul, Paul, James is saying there is, a, there is a use of this word that's understood in this culture as bragging about something noteworthy or excellent, but that's one thing that you do. And by the way, you shouldn't boast that way because bragging about that is not noteworthy. This is like not good. Like the Greek word paneros there for evil. It's like the darkest description of evil known to the Christian universe. You can't get darker than to live your life without God included in it as a believer. So anyways, back here. So Paul says generally in this context, in this culture, when everyone, whenever someone boasts, they're boasting about something that is culturally acceptable as being noteworthy. Okay. Now, in the Christian community, in the church of Corinth, what in the context is culturally acceptable, spiritually noteworthy? We're going to talk about that. And Paul says, this is where I am going to boast. So, what does Paul love to boast about? Hold your fingers here and go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is, this is where that word is used again. And we find out what it's okay to, to brag about inside the local church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's look at verse 3. It does the same thing pretty much without using this word boast in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, but we're in 2 Thessalonians, second letter, chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Okay. Which you endure. So he says here, we're Speaking proudly, we're boasting of what? That which only faith in Christ can produce, which is perseverance and faith. And we notice here that it's not just the Thessalonian church that's being influenced, it's churches. 
cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible, second, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. That's where Paul describes their regional influence for the gospel's sake, this church. So don't take it on my account. Write it down and read it for yourself. Apparently, the Lord Jesus Christ had saved these people. These people were growing one another, and they're building their faith deep and wide among each other. They were practicing the we of protection so that they could experience the we of gospel growth. Okay? And Paul says, I'll brag about that all day long. <laughs> I'll brag about what God's doing through you. I'm not going to brag about you. So back to our text in 2 Corinthians. So when Paul typically uses the word in a positive spiritual sense, and when he boasts, it's exclusively about spiritual growth and gospel growth. As a matter of fact, in our text this morning, he qualified, as we read in verse 13, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned us is the measure of reach even as far as you so we know, too, that this boasting of what God had done was within the sphere of gospel work. Paul was very vocal about the gospel progress God had outlined to be accomplished by him and the people of God as under-shepherds and protectors of the church. You've already underlined this word, measure. We already saw in verse 17 that any measure of success in gospel growth was done by Paul in the Lord. So this is the Lord's message. It's the Lord's gospel. It's his plan. You're his people speaking his message according to his plan. And Paul's saying it's his life in Christ. It's the God's gifting of him. It's the ministry that God's given to Paul. It's the personal scope and sequence of gospel progress and regional progress that he had experienced and he's giving all the credit for all of this to the Lord. And that's why all of us, typically when something spiritually good happens, we always finish by saying, praise the Lord. <laughs> if someone points out a spiritual virtue of your life, a proper response is praise the Lord. Because it ain't in me to do that, right? That's all God, trust me. Right? If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's my fault. Right? Praise the Lord. That's what Paul's saying here. It's in the Lord. He truly knew what a God-centered ministry was. He knew what it meant for Christ to build his church. He knew this building would continue even if the Lord took Paul out of the way. It's all a God thing. And God chooses to use as his earthen vessels to accomplish his will, you and me in this same movement. Galatians 6, 14, you can cross-reference here next to 2 Corinthians 10, our text this morning where Paul said, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Any boasting he does, he's only bragging in that which he considers noteworthy and excellent. And it's all Christ to God's glory as we together pursue gospel progress. I'm just going to stop for a minute because I fear that if I don't stop and pause 
before I go on to this next question, I'll lose some of you. And I don't want to do that, right? Nothing dramatic, nothing sensational, right? But I just want to land the plane of what it means to glory in the Lord in relationship to gospel progress. And a lot of venues throughout our church, ones that you lead, some of you lead, and the ones that I lead will often start a fellowship or a class, a service with a question. And that question is, what's the good news about the good news? Now, some of you, I know, in your, in your brain, you're starting to, like, wrestle with checking out, right? But I, I, I implore you to stay with me. When we ask the question, what's the good news about the good news, what are we, what are we asking to hear about? We're asking to hear about that which is excellent and noteworthy. We're asking to hear about your personal stories of building redemptive relationships with God's called you to do in the context of your natural rhythms of your life for redemptive purposes. When you pray about that and God gives that to you, to a roommate, a neighbor, a coworker, or whatever, and it's this aha moment, wow, I prayed about it, now I've got this open door into this person's life for the gospel's sake. It's whose message and it's whose opportunity. That's God's message, that's God's opportunity. And he's using you. And in the giving of the message in that moment, you act as a responsible under-shepherd of the church in its protection because remember the context. I urge you, you come alongside me and the we protect, not the me protect. Now think about that for the rest of the letter. The protection of the church is certainly being aware of the threads of unbelief and all these things we've been talking about, but it's got to include an active side. The protection's in the action, and it's got to be we. Isn't that amazing? What church is there to protect if there's no true gospel or its influence in the body that calls themselves the church. There may be lots of souls gathered and they may be doing some moral things. But the protection's in the purpose and the purpose is in the protection and it's an eternal purpose. So you... Me, we are the protection of the church unto the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. So if you're building spiritual intentional relationships with people that don't know Jesus in the life, congratulations to God be the glory. Great things he's done through you. And if you have not one thread of your being that throbs and weeps for the lost and those who need Christ, I invite you to change. I invite you to be a protector of the church because the protection is only in the progress of the message. And it's never too late to do right, to get a burden for somebody, to start praying for someone who needs Jesus in the natural rhythms of your life. So anyways, so we talk about what's the good news about the good news. This is not some nice way to segue into preaching or teaching. 
When you talk about your gospel opportunities with your neighbors or your coworkers or someone that's in the sphere of the natural rhythms of your life, we all stop and we listen very intentionally because we know at that moment that's not a needless testimony at the beginning of a class or a service or a fellowship or a discipleship opportunity. That is the work of God. So simple. So profound. And if individuals in the church lose that, the protection of the church is lost. Okay? So what's your role at Grace Church? You wonder, what's my waffling around here? What's my, what am I supposed to do here? Right? It's very clear as a protector what we do, what we don't do. But this is certainly clear. I don't have a group that I fit in with here. I don't have, I don't really know where to go, what to do. I hear all that. We can talk about that for sure. But as a child of God, within a local church of God, this is certainly a pledge of allegiance of what you can be doing and what you should be doing like right now. That's every day. Does that make sense? So if you really want to know what you're supposed to be doing until you find out what your role is or what your place is at grace, you now know what that is. So this is what Paul is saying. As he says we, not me, as he says urge, this is what he's trying to do. And I say this in the most non-guilt trippy ways you possibly can because I think all of us are growing. I hope you give me room to grow and I hope I'm always going to give you room to grow. But the goal Paul's saying here is in the we that we can go seat to seat from Seth to Josiah to Austin all the way down and we can just say, what's the why of your life? Every person, doesn't matter your age, What's the why of your life? In other words, who in your life needs the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you praying and doing everything you can to develop a relationship with them to see them come to know Christ as your Savior? And if someone's sleeping next to you, just nudge them real quick. Right? What's the why of your life? Everyone's got one. God gave it to you. And the mo he gave it to you the moment he saved you. Who is it? Who is it? Some of you are looking down, can't look up at me. I love you. <laughs> Who is it? Who's your why? It's a big deal. Church has no protection in perpetuity without each person living out an eternal why. They've got to have a name. They've got to have a face. They've got to be in your prayer life. They've got to be in your life. Okay. And that's where the church is protected. And this is the measure. Paul says here, God actually measured out for him. This word measure is just really simple. It just means to draw a line. You go onto a football field, you got yard lines, right? 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever. 50-yard line. It just means to draw a line. Paul had given, God had given Paul some lines, some parameters that we'll look at here. Uh, draw, I was going to go read them, but because of time, cross-reference here, Galatians 1. 11 to 17 in Galatians 2, 7 to 9. Paul talks very broadly there about his own testimony. And when God redirected his steps, he gave him a scope and a sequence of gospel progress for himself. Right? In chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, he says, yeah, one of God's apostles he gave as a gospel ministry unto the Gen Jews, and he's given me unto the Gentiles. So there's two lines drawn 
right? Peter to the Jews, me to the Gentiles, and I'm going to stay in my lane. Are you with me? Lines drawn. This is my lane. Take the gospel to the Gentiles. This is Paul. The Corinthians were included in that lane. Are you with me? So Paul's just measure, 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 measure. He says, I'm not even going to jump into Peter's lane anymore. I'm speaking to Jews. Jews are hearing the gospel. I'm going into synagogues. I'm preaching the gospel. But from day one, that was Peter's lane. I'm going to preach to everyone that wants to hear me. I'll give them the gospel. But this is my lane. And he says, with the we, we all have a lane. It's been measured out for us as it was measured for him. This gospel progress. He talks about it in Galatians, or, uh, uh, Romans chapter 15 as well. As he writes to the Roman people, I'm going to come to you, I want to visit, but I'm not going to stay because your gospel lane's filled. I'm going to move on from you and go to Spain because the gospel hasn't gone there yet and they're Gentiles and that's my lane and I'm going to go. In verse 16, he tells the Corinthian people, I want you healthy. I want you protecting the church. Verse 16, for what purpose? So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. That's my lane. And not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of somebody else's lane. We need gospel lane workers. Right? And that's what we are. Within the lane of Northeast Ohio, God has given you different lanes marked out for you that you can reach that I can't reach. I can't reach your neighborhood. I can't reach your coworkers. I can't reach people you exercise with. I can't reach people you shop with. I can't reach people you vacate with. I can't reach people that aren't in my natural rhythms of life that are in your natural rhythms of life. I can't give you the burden to pray for them, to befriend them, to reach them. But God does, God has, and he's giving you your lane, and he's promised fruit in that lane if you're going to be a faithful protector. Amen. You say, why do you get so excited about this, Pastor Tim? I'll tell you why I get excited about it. Because every church that's lost its gospel goals, lost its gospel lane and gospel activity ceases to be a church they can be a gathering of people but they're not a church certainly not a church functioning according to God's will so enjoy what you enjoy that's what Paul's telling us to do we all enjoy what we enjoy God's given us good gifts good jobs good neighborhoods good places to go there's people all around us that need Jesus. What are we doing to reach them? And Paul says here in verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, other men's labors again, but talking about what God's given us in his lane for us. He says, but we hope as your faith grows, Corinthians, we will be within our sphere enlarged by you even more. So as you grow and we grow, we do this together and you help us go on to the next region to take the gospel. And by the way, remember Corinth was in no shape to help advance the gospel before he wrote his first hard letter to them. Do you remember? 
So he writes, assuming faith, assuming they're going to grow from it, deals with their humanity to get them all back involved with the we of shepherding the flock so he could have a stage, if you will, within that lane to go to to be strengthened so that they could be strong enough to send him on for more gospel advancement. It's not rocket science, it's pretty simple, but I think the most simple fundamentals of church function and personal function are those the ones that have to be often repeated Repetition does aid learning. So this is you folks. As our faith grows together around the word and in Christ, if it's true spiritual maturity, it will give way to gospel growth. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, as you grow, I have no need to come and bring the gospel to you, but you can be prepared to help me go take it to other places. Go take it to other places. So the only way we can say something is God's work is by watching what God does to change each other's lives spiritually and then to change direction practically and especially unto gospel growth. So that's when we sit and when we say, if you're paired up with someone to disciple the Bible with them, please start every study by praying for lost people. There really is very little to any value about just studying the Bible together if it's not going to be unto our eternal why. The very Jesus, our Savior, was the eternal word. Isn't he he the eternal Lagos? He is the living word of God. You can't extrapolate from that which is organically and eternally eternal, the Son of God, mission. You can't ever go deeper in the word together without answering the why of why you're studying the word of the word. Does that make sense? So yes, be encouraged. Yes, be rooted and grounded in the word. But always mobile in the work of the Lagos. If not, we'll be intellectually filled up of no practical gospel good. It's always got to be conjoined. And it's a discipline, trust me. It's a discipline in my own life, in my own prayer life, as I disciple. I was FaceTiming disciple someone, a college kid that's from here. Uh, he's two hours away. What do we start with? We pray. Who's God got in your sphere that, that needs Jesus? Right? Roommates, teammates. Right? And then we get to the word for sure. We're going to pray for those people, and we're going to go deeper in the word. Why? Because it's pretty simple. Right? If his buddy gets saved, he can only take the buddy, his buddy that gets saved as far as he is spiritually. So obviously you've got to keep going deeper in the word because if someone gets saved next to you, you've got to be able to lead them in the word. I mean, the world gets this in the most base forms of apprenticeships and everything else, internships and everything. This is God's lane. This is God's gospel lane. It includes all these things. It's not difficult to figure out. So we go deeper so we can go broader. And you hear me say that all the time. So this is Paul's boast. He had known the gospel progress according to God's plan. And so he keeps keeps going. So I ask you, what's God's measured gospel goal for you? I think we've talked about that. And as we finish, remember the whole third portion of this book we're studying is about you with me protecting the testimony of the gospel in the Corinthian community in a biblical fashion. 
so that there can be more gospel growth within the community and beyond. So this question we pose to each other today is legitimate with the realm of protecting the integrity of the church. Paul says we are to be gentle and meek people. We saw that. He says we're to be building and not destroying. He says that we're to be a people of unity and not division under this eternal purpose. He says that the comparison of ourselves in light of ourselves is not wise. And he concludes with God's people being protectors by boasting in and advancing the gospel together. These are the Dokimas people. These are the approved protectors of the church. Vance Havner, who was uh, really a champion of evangelical faith in the middle part of the 20th century, he passed away when I was a senior in high school. I love to listen to his messages. He had a quote during his ministry that went something like this, since we're talking about genuine and disgenuine and genuine protectors and so forth. He said, the devil is not fighting religion. He's too smart for that. He's producing a counterfeit Christianity. So much like the real one that good Christians are afraid to speak out against it. I'm going to read it again. And if your eyes aren't on me, I hope your ears are. Because this was spoken over a generation ago. And there's never anything new under the sun. The devil's not fighting religion. He's already got them in his back pocket. He's too smart for that. He's producing a counterfeit Christianity. So much like the real one. That good Christians are afraid to speak out against it. I think that fits perfectly into the potential distractions of you and me away from the why of our existence. There's plenty. And the scream in our ears and the tug on our shirts is strong. And it's real, isn't it? And those who are tugging, those who are pulling, they're critical. They're divisive. They can't assume faith, let, us assume, let alone assume growth, let, us, let alone deal with our humanity patiently. They're always pulling, they're always dividing, they're always griping, they're always saying, come see me. Here's my resume, here's my papers, here's my philosophy. And they can be as loud in the street so everyone hears. And Paul says, no, I came to you preaching Christ and Christ alone. Now you come with me, let's go in this lane. And so anything in this flock that is a distraction away from that mission, you bet we're going to have a conversation. Because that's the why, why we're here. And it's going to be a good conversation. Right? So we can stay protected as we reach more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity and the clarity of your word. 
Lord, you've measured to all of us by your grace manifold gifts, and those gifts come in degrees, and all of us readily admit that we might not have the highest degree of the gift of grace that you've given to us, but we seek to fan the flame of that gift and use it as best as we can, because it's your gift and not ours. And anything that's done in preaching and learning and growing and living and gospel spread, it's all your grace. It's all you. So many things distract us away from the why of you. I pray the we, not the me, of this family can go forward together as under shepherds of protection. Regardless how loud the secular world or the religious world gets, help us to be galvanized in the message of the word of God this morning about tilling up the soil in the lane that you've measured out for us. For you said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then under the uttermost parts of the world. That's our lane. That's our why. Thank you for measuring that out for us. And you've given us each lanes within those lanes and the natural rhythms of our life. Lord, I beg you on the behalf of the we this morning, give us souls to be saved that would know the peace and joy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ alone right within the sphere of our own personal existence. And may we daily lift up our eyes as we go from this place lifting up our eyes into harvest fields that are white within the own lane that you've given us. And give us fruit that would remain in Christ's name. Amen.